Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. hip 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 powder donut <clears throat> Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So, three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Episode 55 of Kaiju Curry House, the fortnightly show that gives you a healthy dose of kaiju goodness every other Monday. My name's Paul Williams, and I'm joined by two fantastic hosts, Alex and Joe. Welcome both. How are you today? Doing great. How are you? I'm super. I'm excited to discuss the seventh voyage of Sinbad right after I ask Alex, what have kaiju been up to? Oh, just like that. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. Um, I settled down to watch my yokai horror movie, Quiet On. That was my treat to myself for Halloween. So that was four separate films, and I watched half of it because, as you all know from previous episodes, listeners, I fall asleep regularly when watching <laughs> films because I'm so tired. And the two films that I watched were absolutely fantastic. There was um, sort of Ghost stories in a long-haired woman, uh, which was pretty spooky. And then there was another one centered around this uh, frozen ice woman. So they were all centered around ghosts, but they were really, really good. And that was a 60s um, Japanese horror film. I'd say the general tone of it was unsettling rather than frightening, but it was still pretty spooky. And it was very minimalist. All of the sets were completely uh, built by the director and the team, but the background was hand-painted. So the colours were really, really striking. It looked great. I also watched The Seven Voyages Sinbad last night. Um, oh, that's convenient. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Glad yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but do you know what? That was the first ever time I watched it. Still buzzing. Oh, wow. Still got that awesome it, Seventh Voyage feel. It was, it was mint. Yeah, I loved it. It has everything, really. <laughs> it, 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 it packs a lot in. Yeah, so really delighted at that, to be honest. Uh, Joe, what have Kaiju been up to? Right. So in terms of proper kaiju stuff, not that much. Uh, for Godzilla's birthday, which occurred earlier this week, I had the kids sit around and we watched Son of Godzilla. They struggled with it, to be perfectly fair and honest. But um, I, I think it was just they wanted to go off and play. So it was kind of on in the background and occasionally they'd come up and look at it. But, you know, at least we had Godzilla on for, you know, it's 66th. Um, personally, the second half of Jendi Tarkovsky's uh, Primal, which is on Adult Swim and Cartoon Network, 
for, I think it gets shown on channel four here in the UK. Uh, it recently finished uh, its second half. So the last five episodes of the first season. And it's amazing. So for those of you who have not seen Primal, it is a very mature animated television series. It's by the same guy that did Samurai Jack. And it follows a caveman who has been uh, collecting spear. And he has a female Tyrannosaurus or something close to that he has kind of bonded with over a shared trauma. And they just have adventures in a very Conan the Barbarian-esque primitive world. And it was brilliant in every sense of it. The first half of the season got a primetime Emmy Award, which is really saying something for something that's animated and only had five episodes. So fantastic on that end. And I will give one small spoiler. The end of the 10th episode, which is the climax of season one, Spear actually says his first word. So it was pretty awesome. And I really, really enjoyed it. It's got some great dinosaurs in it. It's got some great monsters. There's magic. There's spooky stuff. And it's just really well done because there's no dialogue in it. So it's all story. If any of you uh, remember reading uh, Ricardo de Galdo's uh, Age of Reptiles, it's very similar to that. And like I said, it's just, it blows everything else that I've seen recently out of the water. I was proper hooked and I binged that. So yeah, but Paul, what have Kaiju been up to? Well, um, I've been playing some Kaiju games. Um, I mentioned last episode that I was playing uh, Carrion, which I've now completed. Um, Alex, you missed the episode, but it's a game that I think you'll really like. It's a uh, 2D Metroidvania where you play as the monster. What is this? Tell me about this game. Right, okay, I will, Alex. So imagine a retro game, pixel art style. It's, um, so it's 2D, uh, it's a Metroidvania, so one massive open world, but flat, and you're in a military base, and you're a strange creature that's being captured, of, you're being experimented on. You escape the lab, and you're now working your way around the base, eating the scientists and the military men, and absorbing DNA from other experiments in the lab. I just say the scientists again, Paul. Yes, I mean, but now they but just we get to, can't leave alone. We get to pick up the scientists with our tentacles and munch on them. Tentacles. What, what platforms is on? It's on Switch, Xbox, and PC. And it's, it's about, called. It's called Carrion. It's a indie game by um, Phobia Game Studios. Okay. So it's it. I think it's about four or five hours long. So it's nice and yeah. short. But yeah, had an absolute blast playing as a creature. Which I, in fact, mm -hmm. even one button lets you roar, which freaks out the people, and they kind of back away, even if you're not in the same room because they just hear it and react. So that was cool. And on top of that, I was playing a mobile game called Pacific Rim. Beach, uh, Breach Wars, because apparently it's being okay. cancelled soon, so I thought I'd better give it a quick whirl while it's still available. And it's basically a puzzle game. Visible. So think Candy Crush, but when you match the pieces, your Jaeger attacks the Kaiju, and you've basically got to match enough tiles 
to defeat them. So there was something very similar that they did with Godzilla um, on a mobile phone. I remember that game. Yeah, it, it was kind of, it was almost like Tetris, where you just had to get like the right uh, combination of colors, yeah. and you just like make like these zigzag patterns or whatever all the stream. And the more that, like buttons or like beads or whatever you got, the more powerful your attack was, and like, you're just continually marching through a level. Okay, yeah, it's pretty much the same Paul, as, as this then. Paul, is it as good as Doctor Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine? Oh, I don't know about that. That's a classic. <laughs> it is a classic. <laughs> it is a classic. Um, and. Film-wise, I watched Godzilla vs. Hedorah, which I haven't seen in a long old time, but I'm working my way through the Criterion Collection. The children had no interest whatsoever in that film. It's a very wacky film. It I is. It's very wacky, and they're really, really pushing the pollution element, aren't they? There's constantly scenes of smog and dead fish, of dirty water, everything. But it was, it was a really good film. I did it. I really enjoyed it, but... Yeah, they were just forcing a bit too much. I mean, from what I can remember, Joe, you're not a huge fan of the suit itself and the monster, but you like the concept of it. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think the fact that Hedorah takes on like the traditional humanoid sort of monster with a tail, hmm. I think that more could have been done with that creature concept. I, I'm I'm very much a fan of when Toho goes out on a limb and chooses a different monster design like Biolante, very original, uh, Rodan, at least the newer version, you know, newer versions, like the 90s one I'm a big fan of. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just, you can't really name a lot of non-anthropomorphized lizard, dinosaur, you know, like whatever. And the fact that Hedora, which could be a shape-changing creature, just morphed into one of those after it had all these other fabulous forms, it was a bit disappointing. However, mm. the concept is quite good. I think if Hedorah had gone the route more of like a destroyer-esque morphing into different things, that would have been cool if it had a little bit more going on. But okay. as it is, you know, like perhaps they were a little bit more limited, the budget was smaller. You know, yeah. you can overlook that for what it is. But I'm just saying, like if Hedorah was revisited, you yeah. could go a lot of different directions with that character. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I liked that it was changing size as well at, at points because... It, it was just, it starts off as like a little tadpole, doesn't it? And it just grows and grows. Yeah. So there, I mean, there wasn't, but there could have been lots of scenes where it was a size where people could be running, almost like the blob, running through the streets and it's, and it's there and it's not this giant, you know, beast. There was one scene where it like starts swallowing the cars and they're in the car and it just kind of comes down the windscreen. I thought that, that's really cool. I like that. More of that, please. So yeah, very interesting idea. Have you ever tuned in to listen to... Uh... Zilla Unmade. Can't say I have. No, because the reason why I mentioned there's a YouTube channel called Godzilla Unmade, and one of their episodes is actually Godzilla versus Hedera 2. So they do kind of a sequel to it, but that they're, they're really professionally well put together. They're, they're worth a shout out. So yeah, ch check them out, Paul. I think you might, might okay. enjoy that. And they're, they're not too long. I mean, the uh, Godzilla versus Hedera 2 is only 11 minutes long. So it, it's like just a short story. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really cool. Hmm. Okay, well that's all the kind of goodness that we've been up to, so shall we dive into The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad? I think we should, but I really think that Joe needs to introduce, introduce his film. Fair enough, it's yeah. His, it's his baby. One of it. <laughs> it is my baby. So, I grew up with this film. It is one of my favourites of all time, just films in general. And it really 
cemented Harryhausen in my mind as a great filmmaker. I'd seen Beast from 20,000 Fathoms before I saw this film, but this film, I think, is his greatest. I think that in terms of story, all the different creatures, how well it meshes together, and the appeal to many different ages, I, I think that it really is his best work. Some people might argue Clash of Titans, for instance, which, to be fair, that's great. Or Jason the Argonauts, the skeleton scenes, the Hydra. I mean, there's more intricacy to it. However, when I think of characters, it's really this film that gets me going. And it's a fantastic motion picture. It was released in 1958. It is color. And it follows the exploits of our hero Sinbad, as he tries to remedy a curse placed on the princess Nerissa, who is his betrothed. And in order to do that, they need to go to this island named Colossa, where it has all sorts of dangerous creatures, traps, black magic. It's just, it's got something for everybody there. So it's fantastic. Like I said, it has some of his most iconic creatures, the dragon, the cyclops, they're all in here. So yeah, it is a fantastic film. Well worth a shout. It is a classic in its own right. And I think all of us here on the podcast, we got the 2019 release, which was a Blu-ray and it's by Indicator. And it's got some fantastic uh, original poster art on the uh, cover. Actually, I think this poster art may have been used for the soundtrack and that's where it came from, but it looks fantastic. And yeah, there's, there's nothing that I can say that is wrong with this film. I think that it nailed it on every level. That's, that's kind of like my take. You guys need to kind of like talk so that I don't just keep rambling about it. Well, no, I, it's <laughs> nice to actually hear you talk about it. I mean, you've, you've celebrated in terms of its legacy and its impact. But, but for people such as myself who only saw it last night and people who've never seen it before, what is the basic premise of this film? Well, like I said, so um, Sinbad is a sailor and he is not a pirate, but he is definitely a swashbuckling hero. And the film opens with himself, his betrothed, the princess, and he's aboard a boat of him and his loyal crew. And they uh, land on the island of Colossa, although we don't know it's necessarily called that at the time. And they're just taking on supplies and they're just doing their own thing. Well, out uh, of nowhere, we get this character who's played by Torrin Thatcher and his name is Sakura and he is a dark magician. Although at the time we just consider him a magician. In his hands, he is holding a magic lamp and he is being chased by one of Harryhausen's great creatures, the Cyclops. The Cyclops itself was actually the Ymir armature. Uh, Harryhausen took off all the skin and musculature on it and used the Ymir uh, internals to uh, be retrofitted as the Cyclops. So if you notice that the Cyclops moves in a similar way in this movie as the Ymir, there's a good reason for that. Anyways, uh, they're chased by the Cyclops. There's a brief skirmish and then Sakura uses the magic lamp and out pops the genie, which is Barani. And Barani saves them. 
um, albeit uh, they lose the lamp and Barani in the process of getting away, and they sail back to Simbad's uh, home port. Now, whilst they're in transit, uh, Sakura just keeps saying, we have to go back, we have to go back to the island, we've got to get that lamp, because like any normal individual, he sees the potential in that lamp, and since he's been so close to it, he's become something of an obsess about it. So the whole time he's asking, and the whole time Simbad is saying, no, I want to get married. I have everything I want. So they get back to the home port, and you know the wedding procedures start for Simbad and his princess, and you know kingdoms are coming together and stuff. And Sakura is still pushing. Let's go back to my island. During the wedding feast or the pre-wedding feast reception dinner, or I don't know, um, uh, Sakura does a demonstration of his magic so that he can impress and gain favor in the court, you know, something of politeness because he was saved from a cyclops. Um, anyway, he does a few things, one of which is great. It's another Ray Harryhausen uh, snake, and it's well done. That was the, the highlight of the film for me, actually. Oh, the transition yeah. between, yeah, the snake? Yeah. Um, so uh, just to jump in there, like, I, I went in knowing nothing about this film, other than kind of the context of our upcoming episode looking at the Cyclops with X Plus and John Walsh. But genuinely, I knew nothing about this film. And, you know, I sit down and the Cyclops is in pretty quickly. I was like, wow, oh, there he is. Just like that, you know, within a couple of minutes, there's the Cyclops. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah, nice. But actually what I was more excited by was that fantastic four-armed uh, blue serpentine character. And I loved how it had that, I'm guessing it's plasticine, the, the main body. Um, because it had that kind of like Play-Doh kind of claymation look about the upper half in terms of how it moved because the arms were sort of wibbly wobbly. Yeah, uh, I, if, I, I don't honestly know that much about that one, but if it had an internal armature, I think it would, or something of the like, I think it would have actually just been a wire and latex around it. Right. Uh, if, you, if you use the play, if you use something like Play-Doh or, you know, like what have you, the finer details of like the fingers and stuff. And I think that would get lost in it. But I think if it had an armature, it would be latex with just like an actual wire so that you could get that bendy effect to it. Uh, what Alex is referring to is the princess's lady in waiting. There's a scene where yeah. she is transformed to quote unquote, the most exotic woman in the uh, area. And she is half snake, kind of like Harryhausen's later Medusa in class of the Titans. However, her top half turns blue and has four arms. Now these arms don't have bone, a bone structure like we would imagine. They can do the wave very well, you might say. And she does mm. a dance for like the, uh, uh, the princess's father, the king from another land, um, Simbad, you know, the, ki the king that he's with and like the court. So that's done. And then Sakura is willing to give, sorry, we're transitioning back to the plot here. Sakura gives like a premonition or sees into the future at the request of the court. And he sees bad things. And then he offers to dispel the bad spirits and what have you at the price of going back to his island and getting the lamp to which everybody's like, nah, dude, you're kind of milking it. So they say, get out. We want you to be gone. So Anywho, um, that part uh, ends pretty quickly. Sakura's cast out. And then you notice later in the night, he sneaks back and takes uh, the Princess Nerissa and makes her tiny via magic potion or spell. So Princess Nerissa is probably about the same height as my index finger then. 
and she becomes Thumbelina, for lack of a better way of explaining it. And Sinbad's like, well, can't marry her in this state. So he rushes out to get Sakura, who is about to leave town. He says, we need to get, we need to sort this. So long story short, Sakura says, the ingredients to make her that right size, I could get them. You know, that's not a problem. But the main ingredient is the eggshell of a rock. Now, a rock is a giant flying bird in Arabian mythology. They're said to be so big, they could carry away an elephant. It's based on the elephant birds of Madagascar, in point of fact. But for this story, it is a flying, two-headed, vulture-looking creature. Again, a great Harryhausen um, creature, but that's jumping ahead. So anyways, they sail back, and they get back to Sakura's Island, which is Colossa. And there are a number of things which have been done. They've built a giant crossbow to menace a cyclops with because the entrance to its domain, which looks like a big Easter Island head, has a mouth where everybody comes in and out. So they just kind of point this giant crossbow at that. There's been a mutiny along the way, but that's been quelled. But we're on this island and it's dangerous. And people are keep getting picked off, making poor decisions. But the story really starts to accelerate when we reach the layer of the Cyclops. He's, you can see that he's been living around there. You can see his giant club. He's got a spit roast where he's been eating sailors, you can probably imagine. And then he has his treasure trove. So in the treasure trove, he's in the midst of trying to get away and trying to defend themselves from the Cyclops, which Sinbad manages to dispatch. Um, Sakura shows himself to be not quite so much of a gentleman. So we're still uh, quite dead set on getting Nerissa back to the size that she needs to be. So we make our way up the mountains. There is a rock, um, at least a rock egg. So the sailors break open the rock egg so that they can eat the chick. Uh, it's kind of funny because we see them roasting a giant drumstick, but it's a bit ominous because Sakura keeps looking up in the sky like, Mama's not going to be happy. Mama does arrive, um, people are carried off, there's kind of a fight. Sakura ends up killing uh, Sinbad's best friend and running off. However, he doesn't manage to get the lamp, but he does get uh, the princess. So it then becomes Sinbad's job to go to Sakura's lair and exchange the lamp for the princess and also get the princess returned to the right size. Along the way, uh, at the entrance of Sakura's lair, it was kind of mentioned before that something guards the entrance to his lair, and it's the dragon, which is my favorite part of this film. Hands down, it is a fantastic Ray Harryhausen dragon. I think that it, it's wonderful and elegant, and it's not overly complex. It's just a great dragon. Anyway, uh, they get in. Sakura does black magic. Sinbad does not give him the lamp. He'll give him the lamp once he's off the island. We get a fantastic Ray Harryhausen skeleton fight going up to a spiral staircase, a very in the uh, nature of the old Robin Hood movies where they're doing the sword fight going up the spiral staircase. Um, Sinbad wins against the skeleton. They make their way out. Uh, they free the genie in the process. But once they reach the mouth of the cave, there's another Cyclops. So in order to get past the Cyclops, they release the dragon. There is a fantastic dragon versus Cyclops fight. And then once they've run off and the dragon and the Cyclops have had their fight, Sakura comes along and then starts ordering the dragon after him. 
They get out of giant Easter Island head entrance to the island's interior. The giant crossbow, which I mentioned before, has been set up. The dragon comes out. They shoot it with the giant crossbow. It falls on top of bad guy Sakura. The characters all make their way to the ship. Happy ending. Freed Genie mentions that he's given the Cyclops' treasure to them. You know, romantic kiss between the couple and credits. It's a great film. That was really well delivered. Thank you for that. I've seen it like a million times. I should nah, remember it well. No, no, it was good. <laughs> right, let's take our first break and we'll return and start dissecting what we liked about the film, which in Joe's case is everything. We'll see you shortly. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com. Wendy's new classic chicken sandwich is now in the two for five. And that's reason to celebrate. Try the new classic and then take your mouth on a victory lap with the iconic Dave's single, the delicious spicy chicken sandwich, spicy or crispy 10-piece nuggets, or just get another classic chicken sandwich. Taste greatness today with Wendy's two for five. We got you. For a limited time, a la carte only. Price and participation may vary in U.S. Wendy's. And welcome back to the second part of Kaiju Curry House, episode 55. My name is Alex. I'm joined by my friends, Paul and Joe. We're discussing 1958's The Seven Voyages Sinbad. I'm just staggered by the fact that this film's 62 years old. Because when I was watching it last night, I thought, oh, this is very 60s. And then I realized, no, it's older than that. This is a really old film. But what I was really struck by was just how much phenomenal game... Simbad has the point when his other half says to him, you know, what is it? What if uh, this island isn't real? And he goes in for a kiss and said, for another such kiss, I'd invent an entire continent. And it's like, oh, smooth, mate. <laughs> he is smooth. He's, He's very smooth. Julia said Simbad. that during, during, she's like, why don't you say that? I'm like, I don't know, because I'm not Simbad <laughs> the entire time. I just kept, wow, Simbad's. Very, very smooth. He is a man's man too. I mean, he is. He's a sailor. He's a captain. He's yeah. he's remarkably level-headed. He makes good judgments. He's a swashbuckling hero. Yeah. He's just he's he's a good character. But the thing is too, he's remarkably wholesome too in like the way that he treats people and like the judgment calls that he makes. I think that as a character, he's very sound. I think I most. I think yeah. all of the characters here are sound. If they're a goodie, they're a goodie. If they're a bad guy, yeah, they're bad, but they aren't as bad as they could be, you know? It's really, yeah. it's just a very wholesome, family-friendly film, if I can say that. Would you guys agree that you this can. is definitely a complete show? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of vetted it last night because I haven't watched loads of Harry Harryhausen films, but having watched that and... Um, what's the other one? I've watched Mysterious Island, which I love, and my children really like that. I'd say that Clash of the Titans is probably a bit too old for my, for my children, for my daughter. It's a little bit too frightening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Seven Voyages Sinbad really sticks out. The other point that Julia made to me while watching the film, we were counting how many times they say Baghdad 
and it's a lot. <laughs> Because it's all oh, such and such that the caliph of Baghdad. Welcome to Baghdad. Ah, oh, it's even more beautiful than Baghdad. The princess Baghdad. And we decided that you could play such a game involving lemonade, where every single time they say <laughs> Baghdad, you take a shot, and you could get quite full of uh, bubbles. There Fair enough. Go. Well, I mean, he came from Baghdad, didn't he? So. He, he did. Came from Baghdad, and he returned yeah. to Baghdad, and then he left Baghdad again, and he went back to Baghdad. Absolutely. And yeah. just kind of giving a bit more perspective there, it's, it's really telling when you watch films that are kind of like pre-1980s in the Middle East, because you see places like Baghdad being depicted as this exotic, sultry place where there's sort of this decadence and, you know, belly dancing and like, you know, post-1980s, obviously the tone has changed so much politically. So you think of the Middle East as being this oppressive environment and it's just desert with nothing else, you know. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just bizarre to see older films, you know, show places like Baghdad as being the absolute opulence and exotic yeah. to be fair uh they filmed it in granada spain and a lot of the architecture that's uh taken there i mean it is uh, moorish architecture and it's absolutely mm. stunning and beautiful um i think that uh a lot of the stuff compares with the alhambra in spain um yeah it's that it's that kind of beauty that uh they were going for it's just all all the scenes really like every i think we could talk about the environments that the film is set in because they kind of play their own point too it's a beautifully shot movie and the locations that they selected you could tell that someone just really wanted a good vacation wherever they were going because they were always by a beach a beautiful city it, it was it was just lovely it was just a lovely film to just see there it's gorgeous all the way throughout and i think that yeah like whoever was choosing the set locations like it was their holiday like they were picking holiday locations but it was really fun to watch you reckon columbia pictures had a bit of a budget here for the seaside well i know that ray harryhausen wanted to see the seaside and you can tell that's what he ended up getting so i think that it was mentioned at one point that he wanted to go to Rome. So that's where 20 million miles to earth kind of came from, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, Ymir, it takes place in Rome. Oh, does it have to be in Rome? Yeah, yeah, it definitely needs to be in Rome. We need to go to Rome. <laughs> See, I need to do that yeah. more often as a geographer. I need to kind of say, oh, in yeah. order to give uh, my pupils a thorough understanding <laughs> of glaciers, we need to go oh, to, yeah. I don't know, uh, Iceland, Alaska, can you not show them some powerpoints no not really we need it's to not the same. go to you don't get the same experience no and that's not however in terms of kind of exotic and beautiful landscapes i have been hurt before because when we had uh, the chap godzilla king and the monsters from uh was it wiki Wikizilla. is it godzilla wiki yeah wikizilla thank Wikizilla. you we had him on and I was saying about how I love all of those mid-60s Godzilla films set on the beach. He said, oh yeah, that was just so they could save money because Toho was pretty low on cash. So they just had like a beach background with wallpaper. I was crushed by that. Well, yeah. is what it is, mate. But it no, is. in this film, these are the actual locations and it's no, fantastic. It's good. Yeah, it looks gorgeous. And I just say, I, it hasn't actually clicked that it's that old until I looked at the DVD case today. Yeah. I thought 1958. Yeah. I thought, it is 58. How, wow. 
So wow. can we just talk a moment? So normally, and we don't want, I mean, we don't bash suit pseudimation films on this podcast, but just to give you an idea of how good Ray Harryhausen was as an artist and how much effort he put in to these creatures. He, he spent 11 months on the stop motion for this film. So if, if you want to just look at this film, which was filmed in 1958, and then say, if you want to look at Godzilla or King Kong versus Godzilla in 1962, and just compare them side by side, just to kind of look at the different approaches to creatures, you can really see where Harryhausen shines. Like he had an art down and his creatures are fantastic. The dragon, for instance, in this film, it had its own bellows. So if you want to watch this film for, you know, for the first time, just keep it in mind while you're watching it or if you're rewatching it, the dragon breathes. There's a bellows on the inside of that dragon uh, armature and puppet. So what Harryhausen did while it was sitting there and they're walking by it and everything, he had it breathing and he animated it to that degree. So it's those little touches that make it absolutely fantastic of a film. The other thing that I think is great is just the acting. So it's all over the top. A lot of the characters are quite cliched, but it's a really fun film for the acting in and of itself. So I think Torrin Thatcher did an amazing job as Sakura. I think as far as like the actors go, he's the best. He does these great menacing glares and looks. He has these monologues. Um, he controls the dragon and the skeleton when he's doing his magic. And he's a very complicated character. Sinbad is, you know, very singular in his do-gooder motivations, but Sakura has this um, greed that revolves around the lamp. And, you know, you kind of see a few times in the film where it's like, is he a good character? Is he a bad character? And I think that it's that kind of like baddie that isn't necessarily a baddie. I think it really added a lot to this. But the other great person was uh, Barani, the genie. And he's played by Richard Eyer, if I pronounced that right. But he was just a little guy at the time. Like he is a kid. The genie in this film is a kid, which I think adds a lot of the charm to it. So I'm surprised by that. Yeah. So if you're watching this movie with kids, they're going to go, wait, the genie's a kid? That's mm. awesome. And it, it's kind of fun. I really enjoyed the dialogue that he had with Catherine Grant inside of the lamp. So this is a great thing that I, I, I don't think I've seen this in any other film, but the princess goes, the princess Parissa goes out of the lamp with the genie and she's able to see where he lives, like the genie's digs, supposedly. And I think that that's a really novel concept that she's there talking with this little boy who's this all powerful genie. The other thing, oh, the other great thing that I want to call out is Sakura kind of explains the genie's powers because at the beginning when the Cyclops is attacking, first thing that Sinbad, you know, asks, like, why didn't you use the genie to, you know, kill the Cyclops? And Sakura says, the genie can't be used to kill, but in the powers of defense, there's no one that, you know, can touch him. You know, it's just like these really cool nods, you know, they give, like, the genie has limits, but they're limits of your creativity, not necessarily the limits of his power. It was just the characters, the way that they were fleshed out, you, it, I felt watching this that those characters had known each other for ages, that the relationships were genuine. 
And the way the story unfolded around them was really great too. Alex, what, I mean, you watched this last night. What did you think? In what regard? Does like what impression I get of the actors or just the film in general? So the actors and the story, I mean, in any film, they have to complement each other very well. I felt that the actors had a very good mm. flow with them and the story flowed wonderfully too. And direction yes. that you wouldn't expect. I mean, I, I made the comment earlier about Simbad's character being very smooth, but in all seriousness, what I liked about him was from a sort of a childish perspective, he was the goody, as you said earlier. It's, it's very clear that he is the hero of the piece, but not in that kind of the sort of Fred from... Um, Scooby-Doo kind of, I'm the leader because I'm the boy. No, he actually was a clear leader because he was the good guy and he could lead, you know, when they're at the, um, at the ship and they're being attacked, you know, he's, he's fighting with his crew and he's protecting people and he's got that sense of bravery and courage, which I like. And, you know, he's, he's set on protecting the princess. I mean, it, bless him, he's really in love with the yeah. princess, isn't he? He adores her. Uh, that that's very sweet. I also found myself wondering, is the magician a baddie or not? Because initially I thought, oh, he looks like a pantomime villain. He does, he does. He, he's uh, wearing all black, he has yeah. the bald head. Um, I, I can imagine him sort of like cracking a smoke and all kids going, booze. But then a bit later on, you think, ah, oh, that's strange. He seems to be helping them quite a lot. And then you see him at the window of the princess's bedroom. You're like, no, no, he's clearly a baddie. I also got chills at that point I mentioned earlier where the uh, the lady-in-waiting, the sort of um, the carer-type figure, she has kind of been transformed. And she gets strangled by the tail of the serpent. And I thought, yes. oh, that, that was... <laughs> That was like, within the remit of it being a use certificate, it wasn't so scary that I thought, no, that, that wouldn't be okay for the kids. But it, there was a sense of tension. It's like, oh, is she going to die? But they seem to just intervene in time and she's okay. But I, I love that switch between what was quite clearly the dynamation, the figure made by Harry House and, and the actual, the actress, because you could see her face. There was a close-up on her. And that look of horror she's being strangled. I thought that that was fantastic. I, I, I just loved it. I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I, I just, it was... It's so wholesome. It, it is, really it's, is. It's tight as well. I mean, like, it's, it's only 88 minutes long. So in terms of it that child's attention... It feels it longer in a good way. Yes. It's mean, a lot you, packed in. Yeah, you go away thinking like, oh, this is the seventh voyage of some beds. Where's one through six? I want to see those now. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if I'm going to have my critical head on for a moment, with kind of the genre that we operate in, we often suffer quite subpar films for an hour or two waiting for the good bit with the monster. And yet this film is less than an hour and a half. And it's like, oh, here's a monster. And here's another one. And here's another one. And one after the other and all really good quality uh, you know obviously world class from Harry Howison but they were consistently high bar so yeah it wasn't just a case of oh isn't that the film with the one thing in no 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 it's, it's the everything Colossa does just so much and I feel like we have to go back and mention Kerwin Matthews by name he is the actor that plays Sinbad and the one that we all agree has just like a natural charisma in that role so yeah Kerwin yes. Matthews fantastic for that role i think he nailed it 
absolutely. Um, Paul, what were your thoughts on it? Because you've been very quiet, so uh, I'd like yeah, to see what you think. I watched it like when I was a kid, and haven't. Or they watched it, I think, probably two or three months ago, and I agree that it's absolutely fantastic. That it's like magical, and you know, my kids were intrigued in some bits on there, some bits they weren't so much into. Um, Acting-wise, it did feel a bit pantomiming at times. You know, it, as you say, you know, they're so over the top, but it all—it kind of works as part of the charm of the film. It all—it all just flows so nicely. The, the pacing's fantastic, and um, what you were saying about the um, handmaiden or the sister being being strangled, uh, those last few seconds of the transformation—it's as you say, it's not that scary. But at the same time, it's fantastic that there's that sort of that that's been put into it. It's not just here, here's here's something cool. It's like oh, actually, no, there's, there's the dark side to the magic there, and it's mm. a creature, but it's not a threat as such. It's not like with the monsters we're used to seeing. There are mm. um, just yeah, someone changed magically, and there's the um, the rock, which is just you know, it's just an angry mum. There's so it's good yes. that we've got like the cyclops and the dragon, which seem like the normal baddies, but also just general, you know, beasties about who are just just trying to go about their day to day. And in that regard, watching it reminded me very much of Mysterious Island because they're both films that have beasties in. It's you know, you go to an island and there's multiple monsters on in the, in the same way that you've got the. I'm going to try and get this right. Is it the Cororocus? Cororocus. Fororocus. Th. Fororocus. Okay, so you got the Fororocus, which is the giant bird on Mysterious Island. You got the huge crab. Uh, I can't remember the ones. Oh, you, you got the. the, the is, huge, is there a bee? Yeah. Yeah, the, there's the bee's nest, which is iconic. So you got like fairly standard monsters or stand, fairly standard animals, but they're supersized, aren't they? Whereas this one, it's more fantastical. It's it's two-headed yeah. things. Yeah, more fantastic beasts. And but they're all given the same amount of love, aren't they? There's not one where you think, oh, you know, they, they rush that one in. They're, scraping the barrel. All, yeah, exactly, yeah. They're all created equal. Mm. And I think that's great. So going through the creatures, we'll get some takes here because there are a few <laughs> different scenes and there are a few things about this movie that I think take people off guard. So this movie is regarded as a classic, but a lot of people jump right to Clash of the Titans or the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. So, Paul, I've heard you uh, speak about Jason the Argonauts uh, yes. quite a bit. So Jason the Argonauts, what's it, fam- what's it famous for? Well, uh, for me, it's the, the children of the Hydra. It's those skeletons. The skeletons. So well this, done, yeah. This predates that. It does, so, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just, yeah. just a single so skeleton, is, but This still. is a pre-skeleton. You know, this is the precursor, you might say. So the climax as well. So I love that dragon. I think it was great. <laughs> I, I mean, I love large, dangerous, scaly things, but I think as a character, that dragon adds a lot the original climax was actually going to feature two cyclops fighting. i'm glad they had a dragon so, instead yeah I'm, I'm glad that they had a dragon <laughs> alex thoughts would you would you have missed the dragon i think the two cyclops would have been cool but the dragon was just another layer and i think that the fact that they didn't go for two cyclops shows the dedication to variety it would have been cheaper to do two cyclops yeah, so this is another fun part. Um, Harryhausen originally wanted the dragon breathing fire the whole time. Like, the, the flames were always coming right. out of its mouth. Awesome, Difficult. but not very practical. Yeah, <laughs> so 
the dragon's fire in and of itself, um, if you look at how it breathes fire, if you're of an age, like, you know, Paul, Al, and I, I mean, like, we all have seen a fair few movies at this point, but that's an actual flamethrower. Like, the dragon's fire is a legitimate flamethrower shooting flames 30, 40 feet in the air. And Harryhausen put that over top of the stop motion puppets footage. So yeah, it would have been a lot cheaper. <laughs> they hired a flamethrower for that dragon. The dragon in itself was huge too. It was about three foot long. So that it was, it was a great gnarly beast. And I really appreciate a couple of the things that they did here. Like the dragon doesn't have wings, which I think makes it a very novel creature. It makes it, you know, fairly iconic in its own right like you will recognize that dragon it has the great spiraling horns. horns yeah yeah it has that great red ridge on its back it has the typical lizardy stance and then the cyclops as well the cyclops are their own characters so the cyclops that fights the dragon is obviously different from the cyclops that Simbad has dispatched earlier because that one's dead so the cyclops actually fights the dragon so it has two horns on its head rather than just the one which is the cyclops they fought earlier so it's just these little touches all throughout the film where you can tell someone was thinking and adding these little bits of detail just to make it that little bit much more believable that much better adding these layers like you said mm. alex it's a great great film for those i think things. also in terms of the legacy of this film it very much paved the way for other films which is kind of your point earlier joe just looking at a photo now of the rock you can see the influence that it will have had on the vulture that you see in um, clash of the titans the one that makes all that squawking noise that carries um Cassiopeia in the cage because it it looks like a two-headed like a single-headed version of that two-headed um bird you know it's, it's got the it's got the shape of it but also just looking online for a moment in terms of the budget, it was $650,000 and yet it made 3.2 million. So it, yeah, it was very much commercially successful, which is it's nice to hear, isn't it? it is yeah, nice. well, yeah. They, they, they put the effort forward, mm. but 650,000, I mean, like, that's amazing. You know, you have to admit, like that, mm. that's, you couldn't make a film like that today for 650000 Absolutely not. Looking on the back of the copy that we've got, I think we've got, have we all got the same copy? Of, yes, we do. Uh, I think we do, yeah. So there's a commentary from Phil Tibbet, which I might like to give a go, because uh, Phil Tibbet did um, the Tauntaun in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, Phil Tibbet has done loads. He He's... Famously or infamously, the dinosaur supervisor in Jurassic Park. He's he's seen in the credits. There's a meme going around. Alex, I know you love memes. I do. And it was just like Phil Tippett, dinosaur supervisor. And then below it says, Phil, what the hell were you on about? <laughs> dinosaurs in the kitchen, Phil. The dinosaurs were in the kitchen. He actually responded to that on Twitter at one point. He was just like, to be fair, there were a lot of dinosaurs. But he, he did loads. He did the Tauntaun, the Rancor. He's done Jurassic Park. He's done a variety of iconic creatures. He did the, the monster in Willow. 
Uh, oh yeah, the, yep. the huge two-headed worm thing. Is that like the Urgoth or something like that? I don't, I don't think remember. so. I can't remember the name of it exactly. It's but yeah, a new Willow series, actually. I heard that the other day. Yes, yes, very true. Uh, well, it is time for our second break. When we return, we were going to be talking in detail about what you can expect in our next episode for the interview. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Small business owners, is your internet making office tasks painfully slow? Are your file upload speeds? Sluggish? Are your video calls ch- oppy? You need more speed. AT&T Business Fiber gives you up to 20 times faster upload speeds at half the price of cable. Faster upload speeds mean smoother, less glitchy video conferencing and faster file transfers. Visit att.com slash business fast or call 844-702-FAST to get our best price on our best service. Imagine it, up to 20 times faster upload speeds at half the price of cable. AT&T experts can help you upgrade to AT&T Business Fiber. Soon, you're going to love your internet. Call 844-702-FAST now. Comparison by Telogical Systems, 12-2020. Hello and welcome back to episode 55 of Kaiju Curry House. We are going over the classic that is the seventh voyage of Sinbad. We've gone over the plot, how awesome Ray Harryhausen is, how you should not poke a cyclops. And right now we're going to talk about where we've been going with this episode and why we decided to look at this film specifically. Alex, do you want to spoil the goodies that we have in store for our listeners? I certainly can. So I have the idea of getting this episode dedicated to Seven Voyages Sinbad, not just because I've never seen the film and I was sick of Joe rating it so highly, but actually... We are phenomenally lucky, uh, people who are X plus collectors, that's the very high quality suit accurate uh, figure company. They are in the process of having a pre-order up for the Cyclops figure from the Seven Boys of Sinbad. And the North American lead for sales on X plus is none other than Jeremy Souls, who has been on our show before. He's a good friend of the podcast. We got in touch with Jeremy and said, look, is there any chance that you could come on the show and talk about X Plus's involvement with Seven Voyages Sinbad and specifically Harryhausen figures? Because um, Joe, so far, what figures have we had from the Harryhausen line, from the Harryhausen universe, I should say? So there's a distinction to make. So X Plus mm. made a range of Harryhausen figures. They had the Ymir, they had the dragon, they had the Cyclops. There, there was a variety of them, mm. but that was done years ago. And dare I say it, the quality has gone up dramatically since they made those figures. So now that they're redoing them again, we have seen a couple of figures from 1 million years BC, which is a Harryhausen film done by Hammer Pictures. And we had the Allosaurus, the Triceratops, you know, we had some great stuff there. And then we've got some other iconic creatures coming along. We've got the Emir and we've got the Cyclops, which have been shown. And 
we're just looking to see if there will be more. And Jeremy has the answers on that. However, good listeners, we've got a little bit of a wow factor for you now. We have invited Mr. John Walsh, who is the director, writer, and also, very importantly, trustee of the Ray and Diane Harryhausen Foundation. And he is going to talk with us about these figures, and we have managed to have him do a bit of a review on how good the Cyclops and some of these figures are. So for you folks who really love Collectibles, X-Plus, Star Ace, and Ray Harryhausen, you won't want to miss this next, this next episode because it's going to have everything for you. And this is happening at quite a peculiar time because if you, obviously you're not aware, the UK is now in its second lockdown. And this coincides with the very recent start of the Ray Harryhausen Titan of Cinema exhibition, which is based up in the National Galleries of Scotland in Edinburgh. That started just two weekends ago. I was planning to go, as were many other people, but unfortunately it's very difficult with lockdown and even more so now that we're on full lockdown. However, I'm pleased to say that that exhibition is on for 11 months. When we approached John and Jeremy, we had the idea of having two people from two different sides of this. Um, X plus Jeremy Souls talking about the figure itself and the creation of that toy line with John Walsh talking about Harry Howison's kind of legacy with this film and also um, the preservation of the fantastic creature figures that he's got. So it'll be really exciting to see two very different sides. So you're going to have lots of discussion about the toy line, but also um, some fun little kind of nuggets from the history of Harry Howison because there's been so many quirky stories We've had John Walsh on twice now. The first time was just over a year ago when he um, we called the episode the one of the banana, the banana cake, because uh, we learned from John Walsh that he uh, found Harry Howison in a yellow pages, dialed him up, and went round and had some cake with him and got nattering, and that's how the friendship started. We also had John Walsh on uh, more recently because he was talking about his involvement with the Studio Canal 4K restoration of Flash Gordon, which coincided with his release of the book. Flash Gordon, the story of the film, because that film is notorious uh, for how difficult it was to get off the ground. So John Walsh has been on the show quite a few times now, and we're absolutely delighted that he's coming back to talk about the Cyclops figure. Paul, is there anything else to add to that? No, I'm just very excited because as someone who's been converted to X+, as someone who grew up in Harryhausen, and now we can have someone who actually works, well, kind of set alongside Ray Harryhausen and watch the films, have seen and looked after the figures is now going to see what X plus's take is and will be able to tell us just how good it is. I mean, we know how good it is, but I can't wait to hear an expert in the field actually tell us and, you know, see what nuggets of information we get. It's going to be really fun just for no other fact that they've done the Cyclops, but all that's really left of the original is the armature. So the art, I mean, the armature has been preserved. You can get his mouth and all that, but, uh, we're going to have to really put John through his paces looking at this figure because it will have been done based off of no doubt uh, Ray Harryhausen's artwork and the screen grabs from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. So I'm really excited to see what John, who has no doubt seen that film a few times, hmm. thinks of it. What is an armature? The armature, so stop motion animation, you have these figures, toys, if you will, and they have joints in them 
internal joints underneath the skin, the external layer that you see. And those joints are kind of like a metal skeleton, which you call an armature. And that skeleton stays in place very well. It's fairly stiff. But what you can do is move it little bit by little bit and take a picture so that you get that illusion of movement over the course of many frames. But that metal skeleton or that stable underlying base that you have, that is the armature with which it moves under. So the armature that the Cyclops now is, it, uh, it's just like a couple of inter like interlocking uh, metal bits and you can move and twist each one so that you can get movement out of that certain segment. And essentially what it allows you to do is like, you know, roll an elbow, bend it, things like that. So that the outside, the mechanism, the outside, the bit that with the latex that's painted up that has fur, you know, whatever, the part that looks like the actual character looks like it's moving in time. But underneath every stop motion animation creature or what have you, there is a armature of some sort that keeps it from falling down or slumping or what have you. And it retains that bit that you've moved it to last time without like sliding down or something like that. Because if it did that, you'd lose all the hard work that you had done, you know, like taking the pictures and building up frame by frame, this arc of movement, wherever you had done it. But yeah, that's what an armature is. Well, thank you for that. So uh, dear listeners, that you accompany your you know experience of this episode right now with the more important not to be missed dual interview with john walsh and jeremy souls which is going to be released pretty soon after this so listen out for that and we'll be plugging that on social media i think it's time to round things off so paul if nothing else if nothing else I feel really like I should just be plugging the um, Harry Housen, The Lost Movies book that John Walsh wrote because, well, Brilliant. that's it, it is that's a really great. interesting read. Um, seeing the artwork and, and stills from films, it's just really, it's really, it's good fun and it's interesting. And, you know, I, um, I think if you've liked any of the Harry Housen films, then there's something for you in that book. And obviously, if you haven't seen the film, then please check out The Seven Voyages of Sinbad or... Should I say see the sequels? They came about 10 years later, didn't they? But I can't really remember them that well. What sequels were there? Because there's the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, isn't there? And there was, was it Eye of the Tiger? Yes. Yes, it was. Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, yeah. And are they all Harry Howison? Yes, I believe they are, yeah. Are they as good? I'm going to say no. I don't think they're as tight. There, no. I, there, there are some that love them. It, it, it's one of those nostalgia goggles thing. Yeah, films. they're not bad, but there are definitely folks with nostalgia goggles on them where, mm. where they, you know, everybody has this. So I, I love Terror of Mechagodzilla. However, <laughs> good or bad that movie may be, I love it. Alex, you love Godzilla versus Megalon. That is not necessarily a great film, but you no, love it's it. It's not. So objectively, it's they, not a good film. So. The latter Sinbad movies, I think that they did a good job because mm -hmm. there is like an anthology. One is not a direct sequel to the other by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. So, but if you look at them as independent films, they're great, they're enjoyable, but I cannot, you cannot watch them as sequels to one another. Okay. Of, of the three, I personally think The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad is the tightest, the mm. most overall family-friendly, and I think that it just has the most charm, to be quite frank. So nice. I, I would go with that one before so we you say, say yeah. the other two. 
Okay. I was actually just having a quick look at the about the voyages of Sinbad because I never really thought about it until you mentioned what happened to what like what happened to one. Sinbad two, as a character, there's been so much that's been done with Sinbad. He is not somebody that Ray Harryhausen came up with. That, that no, is very old no, it was character. going back to yeah. Um, it said like eighth, eighth and ninth century AD was when the stories came out, and there were seven voyages of Sinbad. The oh. seventh, the seventh was the final voyage in the stories. Oh, right. Okay. So your recommendation yeah. is the the lost the lot the lost films. The, lo- the lost the lost movies. Um, sorry, sorry, yes. Bye, uh, yeah, bye, absolutely. John and Joe, what's your recommendation? So I'm going to say, if nothing else, uh, right now, whilst we are going into lockdown 2.0, or you know, just because we're coming up on a couple of holidays that involve gift giving, I would head over to Amazon, say. Um, and look up the seventh voyage of Sinbad. There is a Blu-ray for twelve pounds and ninety-nine pence by Indicator. It is fantastic. It has the commentaries that you're looking for. It was released in 2019. It's still out and about. Fairly easy to get. And right now, you can get it delivered the next day. So, pretty good entertainment if you're sitting around the house with not much to do. But it also makes a fantastic gift during this holiday season so go for it the other thing i'm going to say is primal by cartoon network's adult swim which i mentioned at the beginning of this episode just wrapped up its first season it was fantastic give that a watch um and then the other thing i'm going to say is if you have disney plus disney plus introduced the first episode in the UK of The Mandalorian, which is their Star Wars series. It's great. It's got kind of an Old West vibe to it. Mm. But in the first episode of the new season, we finally get to see a crate dragon, which is the legendary giant reptilian monstrous being that inhabits the sand dunes of Tantooine. They are a species in their own right, but it is quite dragony. It is quite kaiju-y and it's Star Wars. It is fantastic. So I will hardly give all three of those a recommend. And I'm also going to wish a late happy birthday to our pal Gojira, who came about on November 3rd. So there we go. Marvellous. Well, just to round off, I would like to give a shout out to our sibling podcast, Echo Station. They have been chatting about releasing their episode dedicated to the first episode of the new Mandalorian series. They're going with Crate Expectations, which I thought was a good title. I was impressed by that as a pun yeah, lover. Three dads on this podcast. That, yeah, yeah. That so crate, oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Fantastic. So it's a round of applause and a good shout out there to the Mandalorian. What an episode. It was fantastic. Um, things I'd like to recommend. The brand new book by Vanessa Harryhausen, who, of course, is Harryhausen's daughter, for the exhibit over in um, the National Galleries in Edinburgh, she has got a brand new book called Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema. And you can get that off Amazon for £23.75 with Prime Delivery. Also, I would like to recommend one of my favourite films, which is The Thief of Baghdad. And that film was in 1940, so it even predates this film. And it's a reference, of course, to earlier in the episode where I mentioned Baghdad a lot. So check out The Thief of Baghdad. It's a film with a flying carpet and a genie, and it's got lots of animation in, and it's it's pretty cool. Well, thank you for listening to episode 55 of Kaiju Curry House. Join us next time to see what we've been setting up or to listen more like to what we've been setting up. 
where we have special guests, Mr. Jeremy Souls, and special guest, Mr. John Walsh. And who knows, they might bring along some friends as well. Anyways, folks, thank you so much. And as always, keep it kaiju. Thanks for joining us at the Curry House today. We hope we've given you enough kaiju goodness to last until next time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Curry Kaiju. If you want to join us on Facebook, we're at UK Kaiju. And if you want to find out about other shows in the network, please visit heroespodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. If your friends haven't told you, McDonald's Spicy Chicken McNuggets are back. The ones made with spicy tempura and aged cayenne. But before you go telling friends, make sure you get them first. Order ahead on the McDonald's app. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For a limited time at participating McDonald's. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl and a foul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law.